for those of you here today, the likelihood is, is that when you leave this place, you're going to say that we, or I went to church, we went to church, right? And I understand what we're saying, but I think we can begin at sometimes to confuse people or even ourselves when we use that kind of verbiage, because I think at times we can begin to think that the church is this building, right? I mean, that's just the reality. We begin to think like, well, church is what I do on Sunday, right? But the reality is the church is, is, is more than that, right? I mean, if you've been with us, I don't know what your Sunday school is. Em and I are the third and fifth graders right now. And Actually, right now we're asking this question, what is the church? And so I might ask my third and fifth graders out there if, if you might just help me a little call and response, right? So see how much you guys have been, been listening, paying attention, been working on it. The church is all Christians what? Everywhere. Thank you. I think that was Megan. Yeah. Who gather what? Together. Here you over here. In their communities to do two things. What was it? Worship, I hear you. Thanks, bro. What's the other one? Serve, right? I hear Emily trying to whisper answers. Man, come on now. Come on now. The church, right? We've been working in kiddos. So if you have a child in the third to fifth grade, right, and they've been working through Gospel Project, then we've been asking, what is the church? And the church is all Christians everywhere who gather together in their communities to worship and serve their God. Pastor and author Jonathan Lehman gives a little bit more, maybe a little bit more to that definition when he says that a, the local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and through gospel ordinances. The reality is, though, this, right? If, if we met outside today and not in this building, you still went to church, right? The church is the people. It is the gathered together, professing believers of Jesus Christ. So don't be confused today as you look around the walls and begin thinking, okay, this is what church is. No, the church is the people who have gathered together. But might we ask, what people? Like who here actually is a part of the church? And so today I hope to answer these three questions. Number one, how do you become a part of the church? Secondly, Who's building the church and why is he able to do it? And third, what is the purpose or what's the mission of the church? The reality is that our background, experiences, brokenness, and baggage all brings different things to the table when we think about what is the church. But the reality is today we need to return and hear Christ telling us what is the church. I hope and pray today that we walk away knowing this, that the church is founded upon the good confession being built by Christ to set the prisoners free. The church is built upon the good confession being built by Christ to set the prisoners free. So let's begin asking that first question today. How do you become a part of the church? And we might answer that with the answer. Uh, I was trying to look and see here. Yeah, we would answer it with this, this statement here. We become a part of the church by the good confession. So we become a part of the church by the good confession. Where is that rooted? Return with me, if you would, Matthew chapter 16. We're going to pick up in verse 13 through 20. Uh, that's going to be our focus today. We will highlight some portions of, of verses 1 through 12 briefly. But look with you would, begin in verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came in the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, and some say one of the prophets. And he looks at them and says this, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are the Christ, 
the son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by, by my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build what my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. For whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And whatever you bound on earth will be bound in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So again, asking that question today and hearing that text, how do we become a part of the church? And the answer is we become a part of the church by the good confession. Right? Uh, my, my boys, sometimes they like locking doors or they like get in their little tents. And to be able to get in there, you have to know the what? The password. Yeah, y'all play it at your house too. I hear you. Oh, wow, that was quick. Yeah, you have to know the password, right? And so the password, right? Dad, you got to tell the password, the secret knock or whatever. Today, guess what? You're going to hear the password to the most valuable place ever, the kingdom of heaven. You're going to hear the secret knock, so to speak, of how the door could be opened unto you. Return if you would, beginning to verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? I don't know if you have a study Bible. I'm going to encourage you. Listen, I know it's been called like big boomer and things like that. Listen, they're heavy, right? They're a lot to lug around different things. But I'm just going to tell you day to day, they are extremely valuable. There's not many mornings that I don't go where I'm not looking, trying to understand better what's happening in this text. What's he saying here? So I'm going to share with you briefly just a few notes from the ESV study Bible. I would encourage you. That's a great one. There's also the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. So there are other great study Bibles out there. But the ESV, CSB, I think both of them do a really good job if you're considering one. Um, I would encourage those. But again, study Bibles are super helpful. So the study Bible here, again, if you have one, it may tell you something about this very region, Caesarea Philippi, which is going to be important for you to understand a little bit what probably what's happening in the context, like behind the scenes. Caesarea Philippi, right, is named for Caesar and Philip, right? Caesar, who, who again, rules over all of Rome, right? But Philip is the Tetrarch, right? He is ruling over this specific region. So guess what? He names it after Caesar and after himself, of course, right? But the reality is this place has been a place of ongoing pagan worship for a long time. I want to show you here that this image, right, of the place there today. What you would see if you walk to this place, you would see this massive rock and this deep cave and, and far enough back in there, there would be a deep water source. But the reality is many thought this was kind of the gateway, so to forth, to the, to the underworld, to Hades, right? Which is what Jesus is going to talk about here in a moment when he says, right, and the gates of Hades shall not overcome it, the gates of hell. That was kind of the thought process. Why? Because this has been a place, right, kind of like the strip mall, so to speak, of worshiping all these other gods. It was at one point a place where Baal was worshipped, right? And you hear about him in the Old Testament. The Greeks worshipped this god Pan and, and all kinds of rampant sexual immorality was a part of that. And then finally there's shrines set up now to Caesar and Caesar is worshipped. And Caesar himself calls himself the son of God. He knows himself as the king of kings and lord of lords. And it's interesting. That in a place like that, Jesus stands and says, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He says, I'm going into the heart of darkness, to the depths of depravity. And I want you to know that I have the power to change hearts and set the captives free. Hallelujah, church. What good news. 
So again, a study Bible, again, allows you to begin to understand some of the things happening. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't already have one of those, that would be a great. If you need help financially, maybe acquiring one of those, let us know. We'd love to help you with that. So that's what he says. He asks them the question, right? Who do people say the Son of Man is there in verse 13? And they respond back, well, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Everybody has their opinion, right? And the good news is their opinions rooted reality in the Old Testament and the culture of that day. Right? There was thoughts that Elijah would come back and Moses had promised this greater messenger. And right? I mean, you talk about Elijah and Jeremiah. You're talking about some of the greatest prophets. John the Baptist. Everybody knows him in that day and time. Right? I mean, this is, this is absolutely elite of the elite. And yet the reality is none of them are good enough. Acknowledging Jesus as even a great teacher and a great prophet is not sufficient. It falls short of who he truly is. And so therefore he asks them this question in verse, um, sorry there, verse 15. But he said to them, what did he say to them, church? What question did he ask? Who do you say that I am? You see, that's the showstopper. The reality of this text today will hinge. That's kind of like the, the, the hinge point, the high point of the text comes this moment of asking this question. Who do you say that I am? But the reality is this is the high point, not only for our text here. It's the high point for all the book of Matthew. Matthew's been trending to this point, And now we have this moment. We've had others kind of at different points saying things. But this is finally one of the disciples, Jesus asking that question, who do you say that I am? In fact, verse 21 will say from this point on, Jesus begins to head toward Jerusalem. This is the high point of Matthew's gospel. Everything from this point forward will move toward the cross and the resurrection. But the reality is the entire Bible has been trending that way. The entire Bible has been waiting for the moment to ask the question, who is this man? It could he actually be the one that the Jewish people had long have been waiting? Is this the promised one who could fulfill everything that they longed for? This again, guys, is this epic question. Who do you say that I am? You see, the reality is life is full of some pretty important questions, isn't it? I mean, you may at some point ask the question or been asked the question. Will you what, Cade? Marry me, right? Huh? Come on, right? That's it. He knows, right? Sometimes you got to come and ask that question. The reality is some of you have probably had moments where you had to say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. Some of you had to make major decisions in regards to military service and sacrifice. Thank you. For others of you, you had to make decisions of where we go to college. Will you take that job? Will you buy that house or that job? Some of you as younger, you're wrestling with questions like, will you check yes or no, right? But the reality is we all live in a world of asking questions. But the truth is none of those questions compares to this one. Because this question is about eternity. It's the most important question. So therefore, I, I, I present to you today that what you're going to hear is going to be the most important answer. And the question was, who do you say that I am? And listen to what Peter responds back, right? Again, this question, right? I mean, think about this for a moment. It's in essence the disciples' final exam, and it, right? I don't know if you've ever had like big finals and you're worried and stressed. Can you imagine if you go into your final, you've been worrying, stressing weeks about all your note cards, flashcards, late nights, early mornings, right? You've been go, 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 and then there's just one question. But this seems to be it. Who do you say that I am? Listen to Peter's answer. Um, Jump back. I jumped over it there. Okay. My apologies. 
said to him, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ is the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one, which means this long-awaited deliverer. Right? I mean, to say that you are the Christ, the Messiah, says that you are the one who is prophet, priest, king. You are the one who can deliver us, save us. You are the one that we need. You are the sinless substitute, we might say. But might we ask also, not only is he the Christ, notice again how Peter answers. He defines him as the son of the living God. That title, living God, was a title used throughout the Old Testament to define God the Father. Right, we hear it in Daniel chapter 6 as King Darius goes to the tomb or, or to, the, to the cave there where, where the lion's den had been. And he goes that next morning and he says, Daniel, are you okay? Was the living God whom you serve, was he able to rescue you? This living God. Right, I mean, it's a reality as we know, again, a little bit of the context of Caesarea Philippi. We know that there's a lot of other false gods around. Right, we think about Pan again, who the Greeks worship with this mythological figure, but the reality is he's not the living God. Well, even Caesar, who has a shrine there, who's being worshipped, we know that he is not an immortal, but indeed he is but a mortal man. He will die. There's only one living God. Notice that not only does he call him the Christ, not only does he confess that he is the, the son of the living God, and notice this statement there again, that son. Right? It's an indication to confess Jesus as the Son of God. You are understanding that as a professing Christian, you are saying that Jesus is one with one in essence and equal to the Father. Beloved, that is considered to the Jewish people blasphemy. To all the religions, they think that, listen, Jesus may be a good man or a good teacher, but listen, they have just said some people say you're the greatest among the prophets. And that's not sufficient. We don't hold that Jesus is simply a good rabbi or a good teacher, but indeed as believers, as members of the true church, we confess that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Notice what Jesus answers him and says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, right? It's, it's just this great moment of confessing this, this statement to him. It says, and I tell you, verse 18, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, the context is that he just confessed Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. And now he begins to talk about the fact that he's going to build the church upon Peter, Right. I mean, listen, this very statement points to the fact of how we come into the church, right? I mean, Jesus, he's just made the profession. You are the son of the living God. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And now just in Jesus in response, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. So it's a reminder to us. Listen, the text is saying before us, it's making the good confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God that brings us into the church. But I think it's wise to ask, does the rest of the New Testament actually affirm this? Right, I think again, as we study our passage in context, it's important to realize it fits within a book and that book within other books and those books within other books from other testament and all 66 books as a whole. So what is the overwhelming majority? What is the, the, the affirmation of the ongoing witness of scripture? I think you heard last week, if you were with us, Kenny preaching from Romans chapter 10, verse nine, right? If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be what? Saved. For it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. It's with your heart that you believe and are justified. So again, it's this idea of the scripture saying it's the good confession that brings us into the place of faith. It's by grace through faith. Listen to what Paul says as he writes to Timothy 
I had it there on the screen, sorry. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, he says, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made, listen to this statement, the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It's the good confession that Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, as you saw with Megan this morning, it's accompanied by baptism, right? It's done in the presence. Notice here, it's not done in secret, but done here in the presence of many witnesses. Emily and I have a friend, some of you guys know him, Mark and Parker Phillips, who serve as International Mission Board missionaries there in Niamey, Niger. And guess what? They have folks every little bit here that are coming to be baptized. And the reality is they're asking to pray because they may be the first member in their family. And some of them may be shunned, kicked out of their homes. They may lose their business. They may no longer be recognized having status in the community just by coming forward and being baptized, professing Christ publicly. But the reality is, again, to be a part of the true church, Jesus says that it's built upon that good confession. So I think it's important at this moment to ask each and every one of you that question. To hear Jesus ask you today from this text, who do you say that I am? How do you answer that right now? Hear Jesus asking you the question, who do you say that I am? Have you made the good confession? Listen, I want to encourage you today, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, even Peter doesn't fully understand the good confession that comes following Christ's death and resurrection, right? It's what we're going to see as we come further here in this very chapter of Matthew 16. Jesus doesn't fully understand what it means to be the Messiah, or Peter doesn't fully understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. So I want to let you know today, as you think about the good confession, it doesn't imply perfect knowledge for you to become a part of the body of Christ. Secondly, listen, knowledge does not require perfect knowledge. It does not require a perfect life, as even Peter himself will later deny Christ. And then we see even in Galatians chapter 2, Peter hypocritically, right, withdrawing from eating with the Gentiles. So the reminder is to become a member of the church through the the good confession does not require perfect knowledge nor a sinless life. Then what does it require? A perfect Savior. It requires a perfect Savior, church. And your repentance and faith in Him. That He is your perfect knowledge. That He is your sinless life. It is trusting and relying upon Him. I want to encourage you as a believer, as a member of the church, I want to encourage you to, even as we hear this word being preached now, to stop and humbly bow and, and, and confess that. Make that good confession even now in your spirit to the Lord. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I accept you. I believe. I still trust 50 years later that you alone are my Lord and Savior. So let's remind ourselves today that the church is founded upon the good confession. It is being built by Christ to free those trapped in sin. So there we ask our second question. Who is building the church and why is he able to do it? And the answer is only Jesus can build the church. Hear that again today. Only Jesus can build the church. Return with you would to verse 18 of Matthew 16. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, notice the statement. I will what? Build my church. Jesus says, I'll do it. The idea of building the church is a familiar imagery for the Jewish people. Throughout the Old Testament, there's different points in which we hear God building the people of Israel up. He's building up the people of God. We hear it in texts like Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 6, where God says, I will set my eyes on them for good and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. But you hear that language again. God is going, I will build them up. 
So we hear this and we must listen. It's important. I think we begin to see that the Old Testament is simply not about Israel and the New Testament is about the church. Instead, what we must see is the Old Testament and the New Testament are about God building a people for himself. Both groups of people are sinners, unable of rescuing or building up themselves. Yet it's God who rescues in the Old Testament and it's God who rescues in the New Testament. Both groups are ultimately saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let the church rest today in the fact that the building of the church does not rest upon our shoulders. Hallelujah. If you're, if, listen, if you were coming to this church thinking it's going to rest on my shoulders or Brother Todd's or some other leader, you are in big trouble. Here, here's, listen, here's the reality. Listen, you and I are but blips on the radar screen, beloved. It's been 2,000 years since Christ made these statements, or roughly that. We're blips on the radar in 2,000 years. We don't know how much longer it'll go on. The good news is Christ was building the church before you and I came. Would you agree with that? And do you agree today that Christ is the one who will build the church after you and I are gone? Do you agree with that? So do we trust that he's the one building the church right here and now? It's just the reality of, of who he is. It's just this beautiful moment. So I think we might ask, well, why is Jesus the only one who's able to build a church? And maybe I might just respond in asking the question is, well, who here actually has the ability to convert sinners? I mean, there are preachers who can move your emotion, right? Get you to come forward, maybe say something. But I, I would say to you, and if you've been on this on Wednesday night the last three weeks, we've been looking at what is biblical conversion. The truth is there's only one who can change the heart. There's only one who has the power and authority to transform the will. There's only one who can take our sinful nature and make it like Christ. He he begins to transform us from the inside out. Only God can do that. Say, well, Blake, where do you get that point of saying that truth? Listen to what he said back in verse 17 here. And Jesus answers him again after he makes that statement in verse 16, right? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Four, here's the reason why you're blessed. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but, listen to what he says, who revealed it to him? My Father who is in heaven. So the revelation of who Jesus Christ is, his true identity as the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus' own lips say, guess what? That does not come from you. It does not come from the family you grew up in. It does not come from your heritage. That revelation, that truth of who Jesus is only comes from God. So the answer to our question is that to recognize Jesus for who he really is, we need something more than flesh and blood. Or maybe to put it positively, to recognize and receive Christ for who he really is, you and I need God the Father to reveal him to us. Listen, it's not that dumb people need to become smart or unlearned people need to become learned. It's that blind people need to see and the dead need to live and only God can do that. That's biblical conversion. You were dead in your trespasses and sin according to Ephesians 2 and 1. But God, as you heard there this morning, verse 4 of Ephesians 2, but God who is rich in mercy made us alive. It's the power of God. Church, listen, I tell you, no man or woman has the power to convert another. It is only the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sins and guides us into all the truth. That's a place for you to rest. You are not powerful enough to save that child or grandchild. You are not strong enough to convert those in your Sunday school class or on your job site. I want you to know only Christ can build the church. Only he has those powers. 
It's not merely we were asking people to turn over a new leaf and just start trying to do better. No, the Bible calls us to become new creations. And Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone. The new is come. Only God can do this work. That's what Jesus says. This has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but it's by my Father who is in heaven. Notice what he says here further to him in verse 18. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is a challenging statement and one that has gotten lots of entanglements. So let's wrestle with it just for a moment. Again, this is one of the things that I like about preaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, because it forces us to deal with texts that we might often run from because they are hard or messy or challenging. So I want to encourage you in that process. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That's the statement, okay? So the question is, right, specifically the Roman Catholic Church holds, because of this very statement and maybe some others, right, but specifically this, that Peter now is the rock which upon the church is built. And so they're going to say that Peter was indeed the first pope, which means father, right? That he's the father of the church. And because of what Jesus is about to say in verse 19, when he says that, and I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, they're saying that Peter has this authority. They call it apostolic authority. And so therefore, everyone who comes in the line after Peter now can trace again. That's why it's so important for the Pope to be able to trace his, his, his line all the way back to Peter, because it starts here, they say, according to what Peter's doing here. But I think, listen, if we just for a moment pause and look at the text, I think the text gives us some clarity. To this statement. When Jesus says, and on this rock I will build my church, the question is, is he referring to Peter or to the confession of faith that Peter has just made, right? That you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's on that rock which Jesus builds the church. I think the interpretation holds here wisely to us is that both run together or work together. The rock is Peter by virtue of his good confession. This is important. The rock is Peter, yes, But it's by virtue of his good confession, which in essence now brings the other apostles in, which in essence somewhere along down the line begins to bring you and I in. This is going to be important, right? Scholars note that the main support for this view is because the prominent role that Peter plays throughout the book of Acts, especially the first 15 chapters. If you come to Acts chapter 2, it's Peter that's preaching on the day of Pentecost, and it's the Jewish people who are responding, the doors, the church doors being opened to the Jews, so to speak. We have in Acts chapter 8, we have Peter and John, and they, guess what? The door's there open to a Samaritan. We come further, are the Samaritans there? Multitudes, right? And then further, if you walk to Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, guess what? You find Peter there opening the door to the Gentiles, inviting them to come in. And guess what? How do each of them come into the church? By the good confession. It's by grace through faith. Right? It's not because Peter is there standing, as we're going to get to in just a moment, and has this authority to say, well, you're in and you're out and in that essence. Right? That's not what this text is showing. And I hope to prove that to you in just a moment. But I think this is important, guys. This is what unites us. This is what united Jew and Gentile and Samaritan. This is what unites slave and free, black and white. This is what unites rich and poor. It is the preaching of the gospel and the response to the gospel of the good confession. It is believing upon Christ, turning from our false gods and confessing Christ as Savior and Lord. Thus, as you look around this room, the reality is you have more in common with these people than many in your own family or some of your closest friends. Because this is an eternal bond that we have made with one another as we 
as a church, as a body, confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That's why it's so important because, again, it's only Christ who can unite. It's only Christ, as we saw last week, who could tear down the dividing wall of hostility. You might be here and thinking, Blake, well, I would believe, I would make the good confession if Jesus would just show up or if he would give me a sign. Well, guess what? That's the very thing they've been wrestling with in the first four verses of Matthew 16. The religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes come to him and says, what sign will you give, right? They come to test him. What sign will you give to prove that you are who you say you are? And he says, well, guess what? An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. What was the sign of Jonah? Well, the sign of Jonah was that he was in the fish for three days and three nights and then vomited out. He says there's going to be a greater sign. It's going to actually be the son of man who's dead in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, right? And then he's raised up out of that for the resurrection unto life. Jesus is saying to us, listen, the greatest sign is my death, burial, and resurrection. It's the greatest truth. It reveals my true identity. Furthermore, listen, guys, this is important because today in the Bible, we have the very words of God. True, Jesus didn't leave behind a Bible and say, all right, guys, here it is. But instead, what he left behind was apostles and prophets, those who would write as carried along by the power of the Holy Spirit. So today, listen, it's guaranteed by the power of the Holy Spirit that what you have today is the very words of God. This morning, by the grace of God, you are here hearing the very words of God. This is the foundation of the church. It's Jesus Christ, and he is calling all of us to repent and believe. So guys, listen, the church is founded upon the good confession. It is being built by Christ to free those trapped in sin. And so that brings us to our third and last question. What's the purpose or the mission of the church? The church's mission is this, to rescue sinners from hell and affirm the forgiveness of sins. Now, as I already said, listen, the reality is this passage fits within a larger passage, within a book, within a multitude of books, within two different testaments. So there's more to say about the mission, the purpose of the church. But nonetheless, this passage does provide much needed clarity about what should the church be doing. So let's dive into it for a moment to listen to our master speak. Look what he says. Verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's just deal with it a little bit here, moment by moment. Notice this statement here. There's gates that are being used. Right? The gates are intended, obviously, to keep certain people in and certain people out. But the good news is that there's one who can come to the gates of hell and they will not prevail against it. Well, what is the, against it? It's the church, right? The church is coming against the gates of hell, setting the captive free. It's as Franny Crosby wrote in 1869, rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin in the grave, weep over the erring one, lift up the fallen, tell them of Jesus the mighty to what? Save. Gates, guys, are a defensive weapon. They're again designed to keep certain people out and others in. Thus, Jesus says that Satan is unable to keep Christ from plundering his kingdom. I shared earlier about how our boys sometimes like to lock the door and do the password. Well, there's other times when sometimes drama happens behind that closed door. And I can hear someone screaming or crying and asking for help. And so I come to the door and sometimes I find it locked and the reality is there's one that's trying to get in and he can't get out because there's others that have barricaded the door. And so I tell them, well, unlock the door. And they sometimes smart out, they respond, it is unlocked, to which they're trying to show their manhood because the door is technically unlocked, but they're holding in all their weights against the door. So it forces me again, right, to either make a threat or begin to push down the handle and pry open the door. 
Why? Because there's somebody in there that needs to be rescued. And he doesn't have the power to get out. That's a weak analogy. And every analogy compared to Christ ultimately crumbles. I get it. But the truth is, Jesus says that you and I are captive to sin and under, as Ephesians 2 says, the influence of Satan. And we cannot free ourselves. But hallelujah, church, there is one who will come and has the power to overcome the gates of hell and set us free. I hope that's you today. I hope you've already experienced that. But if you have not, beloved, I compel you that today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. It's this hope of the gospel that we, listen, church, know this truth today. We can't save anyone, but Jesus can. We can't deliver anyone from Satan's power, but Jesus can. We can't build the church, but Jesus can, and He will. Therefore, listen, let's be intentional this week to go and share the gospel with family and friends and co-workers and tell them intentionally about Jesus Christ, calling upon them to confess Him as Savior and Lord. Let's be intentional in our Wednesday night ministry and in our Sunday school classes to share the gospel, to call people to respond in faith to Jesus Christ. Why? Because only Christ has the power to storm the gates of hell and set the captive free. So the church is clearly called to rescue those held in bondage by Satan. But secondly, the church is to pronounce who is and who is not forgiven. Again, if verse 18 is challenging, so is verse 19. But let's hear it nonetheless. He says unto Peter and undoubtedly to the group here as a whole, but specifically to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Right? It's, it's a powerful imagery, right? Again, this idea of, of having keys, right? I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Again, as you've seen in Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10 and 11, that's Peter using the key to say, God is inviting all those who repent and believe, coming confessing the Son to be a part of the church, right? Whether that's Jew or Samaritan or, or Gentile. It's the truth here as Peter comes, right? And, and Jesus speaks unto Peter. He's saying, listen, the key, it, it gives authority, doesn't it? Access. I mean, like if you have a key today, my assumption is your, your key is going to work for your vehicle when you go out there. I can't put my key in the door or hit the fob and make it work. The reality is the key to your garage door, the key to your front door. Guess what? It's just yours. The key to that building or that barn or whatever that you have locked up. The reality is it's your key. You have access. It gives you authority that other people don't have. The question is, and maybe I would ask today, if you could have a key to any door in the world, what door would you pick? Think about that for a moment. If you could have access, a key to any door in the world, what door might you choose? What if I asked you today if you could have the keys to the kingdom of heaven, would you want them? I have good news for you today. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have those keys. What's the key? It's the gospel. To those who are perishing, it's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the very power of God. Literally, as believers, we possess the keys to the kingdom of God. It's not for some pope or some priest or just to the preacher or some religious leader. Every believer who understands the gospel enough to believe it and be saved possesses the keys to the kingdom. And some of you are like, no, that, that's, I'm not sure that's right. So, so again, let's just wrestle with this for a moment. So I want to prove my point. I hope and pray this is an encouragement to you to live and share the gospel. Look, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So what's this binding and loosing mean? 
It means that, guess what? You have the authority as a believer in Jesus Christ to come to someone and say, as you share the gospel, will you repent and believe, confessing Christ as your Lord and Savior? If they repent and believe, making the good confession, then we have the authority as believers to tell them, listen, you are forgiven. Right? It's the keys of saying you're loose from your sins, right? Based upon that good confession. Now listen, I know they're false professions. I know there are so many other layers behind this text that we could wrestle with for a moment. But again, just briefly dealing with this portion of it. But the reality is, as you also go and share the gospel, and those who are refusing to repent and believe upon Christ, guess what? We have the responsibility to stand and say to them, you are still bound in your sins and headed to hell. Right? I mean, the truth is, listen... We can't tell someone that you're not forgiven just because we don't like them or what they've done. Like, oh, that's not forgivable. On the same hand, we don't have the authority to say to someone, well, you're a part of the body of Christ if they're not willing to repent of their sins and confess Christ. Now, yes, this happens in the context of the church, but also as individual believers, as you go out sharing the gospel day in and day out, you are calling people to repent and believe. You are setting before them the door to the kingdom of heaven. Ultimately trusting, right, just as Jesus says, it's the work of the Father. I know this is the work of the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, as believers, the church specifically has been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. It's important, listen, for us as a church. We're not trying just to make decisions, right? We're we're making disciples, right? It's not our goal just to have decisions. We want to make disciples. Thus is the church part of our ongoing calls to walk beside one another and continue to affirm in the life of one another that they are continuing to live out the good confession. Well, what's that look like? Well, it's those who are truly loosed or those who continue to repent of their sins. Right? I mean, as a church, we are continuing ongoing day in and day out to walk beside one another. It's a reminder of why we need the church. The church is other believers saying to you, yes, I see the manifestation of God's grace, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. We desperately need the church. Beloved, it's time for the church to become more passionate and intentional about sharing the gospel. Beloved, listen, me... You, we, us have to share the gospel. Why? Because Christ has promised he will build his church. It is time for, again, me and you and us to stop hiding behind the stained glass window and these walls and to go out there and present the keys to the kingdom of heaven to whoever is willing to repent and believe upon the Son. Church. We must go. They need to hear. It is the only way to be saved and set free. Some of you today are here though and you've never made that good confession. But today, as Jesus says, the Father has revealed Him unto you. You see and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I compel you to come forward, to make that good confession, to respond unto Christ. Stop believing that you have another day or another hour. No man knows the day or hour in which death will come unto him. Don't be so foolish and naive to think that somehow you'll do it later. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. Church, let's be faithful. Let's go to this community. Let's go to the nations and share this gospel. Let's go and live the good confession that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray... um, 
that you would make clear the things that I have struggled to communicate today. I thank you, God, that your word is ever true. Thank you, Father God, for the hope of the gospel. I pray now, God, that your spirit would do what only your spirit could do, Lord. That by the preaching of the gospel, Lord, you have ordained that men and women, boys and girls would be saved. Father, I pray today in this place that people would hear the gospel, repent of their sins, God. Turning from those sinful ways, not by their own strength, but by the power of your spirit, Lord. Turning unto Christ to worship him alone. God, I pray that you would strengthen us also as a church to be bold to go and share the gospel. Father, give us that courage. Thank you, Lord, that we cannot save ourselves, but Christ himself came and set us free. Thank you, Christ. Blessed be your holy name. All glory be unto you. I pray this in your blessed and holy name, Lord. Amen. This is Todd Young with Greensburg Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us today. If you've accepted Christ during today's podcast, we would love to hear from you and connect you with a home church in your area. Or if you have questions regarding a relationship with Christ, Brother Blake and I would love to speak with you. Please contact us at the church office at 270-932-4495 or connect with us through our website at greensburgbaptist.com. In addition, you may visit our website anytime to access the sermon videos and podcast of any recent sermon. You may also subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store. Have a great day today.